podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. But turning your Bibles to Mark chapter number three, Mark chapter number three, and as you get your Bibles or your uh, journal there, it's going to be verse 17, Mark chapter three, verse 17, and so, or, or verse seven, I'm sorry, verse seven through 19, so let's stand together as we read Mark chapter three, verse seven through 19, and the reason why we stand is because we want to remember uh, that this is God's word that we are Reading. This is God's word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea. And Jerusalem and, and Idium, and if, if, you, if I'm saying it wrong, I just read it fast, hoping you won't see that I'm saying it wrong. And from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyra and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he had named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Bonin, ooh, the son of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and the sons of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and, the Simon, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. God, I pray that you would take these words and sink them into our hearts. I pray, God, that we would hear and know and that we would see you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm really enjoying studying the book of Mark with, uh, with you all and all the congregations that we are a part of. One of the things we've been talking about, if this is your first time with us, is that this book came to the church um, when the church was under great persecution, under Nero. And uh, basically what he was doing is killing Christians, but he was also lying and trying to defame them and, uh, and, make, uh, and make it known that they were doing things that they weren't doing. So basically he would set fires and then he would blame Christians. There was all these kinds of things that were taking place. And then in the midst of that, Nero was announcing himself as king, as basically God. He was saying that he was God. And this book, Mark, comes out in that time... And it is a direct confrontation, if you will, of all the kingdoms of this world because Jesus is announcing and he is opposing the kingdoms of the world and announcing that he is king and what his kingdom is like. 
And he shows us that the kingdom of God, there's no evil and sickness. Wherever his kingdom goes, he drives those things out. The kingdom of God is opposite of the kingdoms of this world. We see that even when his popularity is rising, when Jesus' popularity is rising, he, he uh, pulls away from that because he didn't come for power and popularity. He came to heal and restore and save and establish this true kingdom. His kingdom confronts all the systems of this world. And you see this as you walk through this book. Now, many stories or many religions or many claims, and I want this, uh, I, I want us to focus on this. I'm going to try to see if I can tr- control it. Is it up there? Or I, I, I'm, I'm learning a new system here. I get to control it from here. So let me see if I can actually, uh-oh, my password. I need you to control it from up there for me. My password just went away. Um, it, it, this next, all religious claims are claims to be true, and they have they claim to be authoritative, and they claim to be communal. Now. When we see that they claim to be communal and religious, last week we talked about what this new religion looks like, right? And when we say religion, we're not just talking about it in a negative sense. We're talking about it in ultimate commitment. And when we talk about this new religion, what we see from last week and the weeks before is that this new religious commitment is not based on a man-made formula. If you weren't here last week, I hope you'll go online and listen because the reality is we love formulas. We love to come up with kind of religious systems and formulas. And the reason why we come up with religious systems and formulas is so that we can ignore the wickedness in our own hearts. But this new religion is not based on man-made systems and formulas. It's based on reclaiming the heart and the purpose of the law. It's based on reclaiming this, this, this relationship with God that has been destroyed because of sin. So we talked about this new religion because all religions, all religions, all worldviews make these claims. that They say they're authoritative and they're true. They talk about a community that has to surround that and embody it. And they talk about a commitment that is needed. And what we're going to see as we study these, 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 uh, the book of Mark is that Jesus is saying, yes, these are true, but not as the, the kingdoms of this world, not as the religions of this world, but there is a different way. There's a way in which the true king establishes his kingdom. So we talked about religion last week. This week we're going to focus in on what kind of community is God forming to embody his presence and his mission? What kind of community surrounds this claim? What kind of community does God call to himself? Now, when we start talking about community, it becomes really, really hard. I had one person who saw me in a in a, uh, a grocery store who said, Pastor, I haven't been at church in a while, but the reason why is I, I, I just, I, I, here, listen, let me tell you, Pastor, I love God. I love him so much, but I just can't stand his people. Now, the reality is we have this kind of understanding. Maybe we wouldn't say it that way, or maybe we would. But we have this kind of understanding. We have a thought that there is actually a possibility to have a deep love for God and a disgust or a hatred for his people. 
no matter how blatantly Scripture says there's no way you can love God and not love his people. No matter how, how much Scripture shows that a love for God ends up in a love for people, when we start talking about community, we give ourselves an out. We give ourselves an out, and here's the reason why we give ourselves an out, is because we think we are smarter than God. We think at the end of the Bible, when you go there, there's just a, a, a sentence that says for you specifically, and maybe you wrote it in there, but you think it's authoritative, never mind what I said. Because we really believe deep inside that if he understood my situation, if he understood who I was, if he understood my context, he would never say that you need to be in community. Whenever you start talking about the kinds of community that God calls us into, people start having immediate objections. Immediate objections. And I, I can understand that, and most of it is circumstantial, saying I've been to this kind of church, I, I did have community, I had people in my life, and they hurt me, and they offended me, and they, they didn't do all the things that they were supposed to do, and, and all these kinds of things that took place. If you only knew what people did to me, you would understand. Now listen, I can diagnose problems with the best of them. I can sit with you and we could spend time diagnosing why you're doing all the things that you're doing and why you're not doing all the things that you should be doing. We could sit there and say, you know, my father was this way, my mother was this way, my church was this way, the school I went to, the neighborhood I grew up in. Listen, and all of those things are good for diagno diagnostic reasons, to kind of find out what's going on. It's kind of like an x-ray. My wife and I, we had to, I had to take my wife to an x-ray, and she had to get inside of that, that tube, right? And, and she got claustrophobic and had to be pulled out, and we had to make sure we got a, a bigger tube because getting inside of there was just cramped, and they had to do all of these kinds of x-rays. But here's what we did when we went there. We never went to the x-ray or the MRI or all the things that she had to do. We never went there thinking this was going to heal her. We only went there to find out what? What was going on. So that we could find a cure. You don't go to a diagnostic tool to find a cure. You go there to find the sickness. But many of us find a weird sense of healing in just knowing what's wrong with us. Rather than understanding that God has provided for us not just a diagnostic tool to show us how jacked up we are. We don't need a very big diagnostic tool to figure that out. We're all really jacked up. But what the gospel does is shows us not just what is wrong with our hearts, but shows us what healing and life looks like. Shows us how we should Walk and live. And what his spirit can do in our hearts. So what I want us to do today as we walk through this is not give ourselves an excuse. 
not give ourselves a diagnosis that excuses us from walking in what God has called us to, but that we would, we would love to hear the truths of what God has done and what he is doing and what he has called us into, and that we would long in our hearts that by his spirit, that if we believe the truths of the gospel, that it's not just a forgiveness of sins, but that his spirit lives within us, that we can actually live into the things God has called us into. Can the church say amen? You're getting real quiet this morning. Thank you to the three of you who are here to, to, to participate. Here's what, I, here's what I want us to see first before we jump into what we can learn from this. What I want us to see is what is Jesus revealing about himself? Because if we can start there and see what is Jesus revealing about himself, then we could get a big picture of who he is, and then we could start to narrow in on what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? As you read through these stories, what you're seeing is that Jesus has crowds that are pressing in on him. And if you look at the one, if you look at verse number nine, it says that he told his disciples, go get the boat ready so that I can get in the boat because the crowds were coming in on him and they were going to crush him. It was like a getaway car, except it was a boat. And they're just like, oh, let's get out of here, right? Get in, Jesus. He's running. The crowds are coming after him. Paparazzis are going crazy. Demons are screaming out, that's the Son of God. He's like, shh. And he's running to the boat, and the disciples are like, come on. This is the height of popularity. But the interesting thing is up until this point, there is no one who acknowledges who he actually is except for demons. The only people or the only beings that have acknowledged his, that he is the son of God is demons. We saw that earlier on and now we're seeing it again. That he's announced, they're announcing that he is the son of God. Now what the son of God is, is that is the Messiah. They're saying he is the Messiah, which basically means he is the true king of Israel. You have to remember that Israel has been waiting and longing for this promised Messiah to come. But when Jesus came, they didn't, that's not him. They're this desperate bride longing for their bridegroom to come. But when the bridegroom came, they're like, that doesn't look like what I thought he would look like. They didn't receive him. And the only ones who recognized him were demons. That's the son of God. He's like, don't tell anybody. And then what he does next, after he rows off in the boat, he calls to himself, he goes up onto a mountain, and he calls to himself who he wills. And, 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 and what he does is very interesting. He picks 12 apostles. Now, how many of you know, there's not going to be many of you, I know this. You don't have to yell it out to show how smart you are. How many of you know how many seats are in the Senate? Very few of us. Most of us don't even care. How about how many of us know how many seats are in the House of Representatives? Very few of us, maybe a, just a couple strange people. Not many of us know the answer, nor do we care to know the answer, but I, get, I guarantee there's a massive majority that know this answer. How many tribes of Israel are there? 
I got one. Out of all, I got one. Twelve. Almost every one of us know that there are 12 tribes of Israel. And, And believe me, if we know that, they knew that. Every one of them knew that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes were corresponding with the 12 sons of Jacob or one of the patriarchs. And and prophets had been saying that there was going to be one who was going to come. And the prophets were proclaiming that that one who was going to come was going to restore Israel. And the one they were longing for, he was going to come and he was going to make all things new. He was going to make Israel a great nation again is what they had thought. And so when he took them onto the mountain, what you have to do is understand the imagery here is when he took them up onto the mountain and it says that he went up. This is like Moses going up into Mount Sinai where he receives the law. And what it says there is he picked how many disciples or how many apostles? He picked what? Twelve. Listen, what Jesus is doing in this text should not be lost on us. If we knew there were twelve tribes of Israel and he's now picking twelve apostles, it should not be lost on us, the imagery. And let me tell you why. Because it was not lost on them. That this Jesus who is claiming to be the Messiah and demons know that he's the Messiah is coming in and what he is doing is he is picking 12 apostles and he's making a massive claim and this claim is Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is going to restore and make Israel new. He is claiming, hey, you know that king you've been waiting for? The Messiah you've been longing for who's going to come and make Israel new? I am that Messiah. And not only am I that Messiah, but I am taking and choosing 12 apostles to restore my people, Israel. This is a powerful image because what he's doing here is showing how he is restoring Israel. His people. He is the king and he has come to make his people new. What a powerful image and what a powerful thing in which he's displaying. But what it also shows us is that Christ has come not just to redeem and, 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 and save, not just to, um, to die on the cross, but he has come to do a specific work. That the work that he did on the cross was to accomplish something that is extremely powerful. That the work of the cross and the power of his resurrection and those things that he did was accomplishing something that is Extremely important. Here's what he's come to do. He's come to make a new community. His king, this king, is establishing his kingdom. And it's confronting all the kingdoms of this world, yes, but it's calling a people to embody this, to be a part of his community and to embody this message. And what we have to ask in this, and so that we do not miss what what Jesus is doing in this, is, is not only marvel in how he's revealed himself, but also to ask this question. 
What kind of new community is he building? What kind of new community is he building? And how can I be affected by these truths? Not just read this kind of historical facts, although this is what Jesus did, but see what he is doing and see why Mark is portraying this to us. I'm going to make a few points on the kind of community that he's creating, and hopefully it will stir our hearts for Jesus, for his people. First is this. This new community is one This new community is ones who are called based on his will, based on Jesus' will. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And he went to the mountain, and he called to him those who he desired. He called to them those who he desired. Remember this. Crowds were following him. Crowds wanted him. Crowds were basically crushing him. But although there were tons of people who were following him, Jesus ascends to this mountain and he calls to himself those who he desires. That crowds are different from disciples or apostles, if you will. Crowds are different, and what distinguishes the crowds from these whom he desires is it, what starts with is disciples are those Jesus calls based upon his desire, his will. Disciples are not just those who follow Jesus because they're doing him a favor. Or they're not just following him because they have something that they want. What is truly miraculous about those who are disciples, those who are followers of Christ, is that they are responding to a call from Jesus. This is a community that Christ builds and not a community that's built on the will or the preferences of men, but it's built upon the call of God. The members of this community have only one thing in common, God's sovereign call. This is powerful to wrestle with, and it's important for us to understand that the people of God have nothing to boast in outside of this. God has called me to himself by his grace. That the commonality of Jesus' people or Jesus' community, the commonality has nothing to do with anything outside of this. I have been called by Jesus to come to him. He wants me. He desires me. He brought me in. I have been called into relationship with Jesus. And here's why this is important. is because this community that he called was a very diverse community of common average people. I love that. I think it's important for a church, particularly us, so I'm speaking to us, but I think it's important for any church. But I hope that you see and that what's not lost on you is the fact that any church should only be able to point to one thing that draws them together. And that is God's call, God's will. 
God's grace. I get nervous when I walk into a room, and that's a church, and I get nervous when I walk into this church, and you can find a bunch of other reasons why these people would get together. When you can look and, 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 and they go, well, these people, they look the same. Maybe they have the same color of skin. So, yeah, obviously they would get together. Or maybe you look in there and they're, yeah, they have the same style of music or the same style culturally of the things that they enjoy. Obviously they would get together. Or maybe they're the same class of people. These people are rich, so obviously they would get together. These people are poor, so obviously they would get together. There's other things that we try and point to. And even when we invite people, we find those who have other things in common with us and go, you look like the people that go to our church. You should come to our community we try to gather around other things why well many of us are extremely scared of diversity because if we don't have things in common and we don't understand you know the kind of culture that we have we get uncomfortable why because we love things that of Here's, here's just a simple way to put it, but I know it's really hard. We would rather have a community that looks like us than Christ. I feel more comfortable when everybody looks like me. And everybody sounds like me. And everybody talks like me. And everybody believes like me. I look, I feel far more comfortable when we all have something else in common. But when it comes down to it, what really drew these people together was Christ and his call. A very diverse community. I believe a diverse community shows so much about the gospel that he would call these different people to himself. And the only thing it points to was he wanted them to come. He called them. God's call is extremely important. Number two is this. This new community are ones who were called, not just called, but called to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 13 again. He called them and they came to him. Why this was so important is because what we gather around is not just a list of teachings. This is important because in that time, other, other rabbis had disciples. But those disciples were not gathered around that rabbi. What they were gathered around was his teachings about the Torah. So they were gathered around the Torah, and this rabbi had a, maybe a unique way of looking at the Torah, and so they would call them to say, look, let's study the Torah. They would call them to something greater themselves. But what Jesus is doing here is calling these disciples to him, which is another pronouncement, I am king, I am God. Other rabbis were scared to do this because they didn't want to have that claim that they were king and they were God. But Jesus is saying, no, you come to me. You follow me. What are we coming into when we're called into this relationship or this community? We're coming into a relationship with Jesus. We're called to him. The third thing is this. This new community are ones who Jesus is making. I love this. Verse 14, if you look there, says that he appointed 12. Now that word appointed 
is or is is better translated, if you will, he made the twelve. Now he this shows us that he brought the twelve into existence. Now Mark's verb is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. Now what this is, is showing is that it's really possible that Mark is showing us uh, that just like God created the heavens and earth, Jesus is creating a new creation. And this new creation is his people that he is making and forming and fashioning. It's, it's amazing that when Jesus called disciples to himself, how did he say it? Follow me and I will what? Make you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Disciples are not just consistent of, are not just consist of people who are just kind of following Christ in their own will. They understand that not only has Christ called me, but he has committed to make me. He has committed to form me and fashion me that the same God who created the earth is the same God who is working on me. Amen. That is good news, church, because the reality is if he called me, and and I thought what he was doing is follow me and you have to do everything right. Follow me and you got to figure it out yourself. But the call is not just follow me. The call is I've chosen you and I will make you. That the same God who has chosen you is the same God who is committing to make you, to create in you a clean heart, to fashion you and form you. He is taking a powerful position here, a powerful commitment to form and fashion us. Another thing that he does is powerful because it carries on this this kind of imagery of this new creation. Isn't it amazing that the Bible speaks of us as his people, as new creations where old things have passed away and behold all things that have come new and that when Jesus comes in, what he's doing is making this new community, this new creation. He's making this and forming it and fashioning it just like he did in the world. And he carries on that theme of creation when he names them apostles. How many of you know what God told Adam to do in creation? God told Adam that he had given him a responsibility to name things, to name the animals. Now, naming is important. Now, for me, I I carry this weight. Some people don't care, and they just name them whatever they think is cool. I think cool should play a factor. I don't think you should name them something weird. I think cool should play a factor, but if it's just cool factor, I think we're missing the point of what naming is. Adam wasn't just called to say, whatever you think is cool, just give them that name. No, the responsibility of naming was a very powerful responsibility, something that fathers took extremely seriously and something that Adam took seriously because naming something in creation gave it meaning and purpose. Now, I, this is just for our family. Some people get offended when I talk. My wife and I, 
have, have, have come to the agreement that I would name all of our kids. Now, I think it's something that's extremely powerful and I take seriously. Some of you moms in here are like, I'm pushing this baby out. My husband is not naming it. <laughs> but I consider it kind of going through my own kind of labor process, you know. <laughs> it's painful. I kind of birth out a name, you know what I mean? I push, I push, I struggle, I toil. I do all that I can to get the right name. So, I, you know, I gain weight and all these things happen. <laughs> Morning sickness. There's a lot of things that go on in my body as I'm trying to birth out this name. So I get what you women are going through. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. There's something extremely important for me, and here's the reason why. Every one of my children, what I did was, as I was struggling with finding their name, is I wanted to find something that would both identify them with a character of God and give them a purpose in how they should live their lives. This was powerful for me as my father would pray over us and as he would pray over us, he would remind us what our names meant and why he named us that. It was a powerful moment for us and it's cool for me to talk to my kids about why I named them. And why I named them, what I named them. Because what it was, when I named them that, it had a specific meaning. And that meaning had a specific vision for their lives. And the reason why Jesus gave them that name is it reflected that he is the new Adam. Which is really powerful. Because Adam was called to name creation. And now here's this new Adam coming into this this earth to establish this new race, this new people. And he gives them a name. He names them apostles. And the reason why he names them apostles is not only for them to have this kind of title. Because that's not the, 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 the real purpose to give them a position or a title, but to give them a meaning and a vision for how they should live their lives. What does apostles mean? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these last two points, and I hope that these will drive home this point. First is this. This new community was identified by being with him. Verse 14 shows us to be with him is what was unique about apostles. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. I hope you'll write that down. Being a follower of Christ is first a relationship before it is a task. To be with Jesus is the most profound part of being a follower of Christ. I hope this point does not get lost on us because it is what has made God's people special throughout all of history. Here's the thing. What made God's people special all the way through history from creation until now was that his presence was with them. In the garden, he would walk with them. The children of Israel, he would be with them. His tabernacle was there. There was a fire. There was a cloud. There was a tabernacle. Jesus comes and his presence are with his people. And now as the church, as he sends the church out, what does he do? He breathes his spirit. What makes us unique is not our gifts and talents and our mission and our purpose. What makes us a special people is that we are with Jesus. 
We have his spirit. We have his presence. I hope that this is not lost on us. Because as I go into this next point, we have to first drive home what made them unique as apostles was the meaning of that, that they were with Jesus. The next point is this, that this new community are sent ones to do the work of Jesus. Apostles means those who are sent. They are sent to do the work of Jesus. And to be sent is very, very powerful. I hope that that you understand this because the way that he sent them was the same way his father sent them. To be sent was very, very powerful. And children understand the power of sent. Children understand it, especially if you have multiple children. One of the smallest ones, you got my little baby, Aria. She's three years old. She could not hurt anybody, although she thinks she could beat everybody up. She couldn't even do it if she tried. But if I go to her and I say, Aria, you need to go to your brothers who are bigger than her, but they love her. They wouldn't do nothing. But if you, they're bigger than I need you to go tell them that they need to come talk to me because they are in trouble. Aria will take that. And understand that her father has sent her. She will run back into the room and put her hand on her hip. And she will say, boys, daddy wants you. You're in trouble. Whatever I told her to say, daddy wants you, you're in trouble. She may add some things and some gibberish because she doesn't talk very well yet. But why don't the boys look at her and go, You're crazy and beat her up right there, right? Why don't they do that? They're going to run in and go, Dad, what's going on? Because they don't look at Aria and say, Aria is calling us. What they see is in this little baby girl, they see me. They see me commissioning her to go tell them to come. They're not scared of her. They're scared of me. They don't respect her. They respect me. They can trample her, but they can't trample me yet. And I will make sure for the rest of their life they know that. Why? Because the meaning of this is very clear when it says the Father sent the Son and the Son sends His disciples. The reality is the world should not see us operating in our own authority, but there should be a sense of we have authority because what? The Father has sent us. The meaning is very, very clear that he has a work for them to do. And if he's going to give them a work, he's also going to give them in that work meaning and purpose. Many of us have a struggle finding what is my meaning and purpose in life. And we're struggling to say, God, could you just show me my meaning and purpose? And the problem with us trying to find our meaning and purpose is that we try to find it outside of the work of Jesus. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to be sent by him. I don't want to accomplish what he wants me to accomplish. I want him to give me meaning and purpose, but I don't want it to mean I'm going and doing something. This meaning and purpose that we find is found in the work of Jesus. It's amazing that God has not only brought us into relationship with him, but he's included us in his work. 
The meaning is very, very clear. When he sends his disciples, he sends them in three ways, relational, verbal, and behavioral. How does he do that? First, he says, he does it in his name. That's relational. Second is, he tells them to speak his message. Hear and speak what I'm saying. Go out and preach the gospel. So there is this message that needs to be preached. Third, cast out demons. That is, he has called us to oppose evil. So they are to act in his place. And they are to act as ones who are sent. God has given us a very powerful calling when he's called us into relationship with him and that he's called us into his work. And many of us think that being a disciple is just believing and that doing something for God is like a special brand of discipleship. Doing his work is only for the elite Christian. And what we've done is we've separated being in relationship with God from community and we've separated being relationship from God from being a part of his work. Isn't that interesting? That we have given ourselves a real, uh, a real pass, if you will, and just saying, here's what the Christian faith is all about. It's about being like the crowds where you just go after Jesus to get your healing you throng him and you crush him and you go after him but what this shows us is is that the crowds and discipleship are very different why because discipleship is being brought and called into relationship with him and called into his work and his mission and that we as his people are not just are not just saying okay some can believe and, and some can do work and all those kind of things. No, the powerful part of being in relationship with him is that the very base level of coming into relationship with him is coming into relationship with his people and coming into relationship with his work. That he cannot be separated from his people or his mission. That when we come into his kingdom, we get to be a part of all of those things. We get to be a part of him, we get to be a part of his people, and we get to be a part of his work. Now, what we have to do is crush this superstar mentality that we have in our world, thinking that the only way you can do his work is if you're a special class of Christian, a celebrity Christian, if you will. They're the ones who do things, and they're the ones who have gifts. But the Bible shows us that all of us have been given gifts and uniquely called into doing the work that he has given us and that through life and family and work and all of these things that we've been called into all areas of life what we like to call it in redemption and I love this is we are naturally supernatural that we believe the supernatural work of God happens in the most natural places church I hope that you hear today that what we need to learn from this text is first we need to see that Jesus is making a massive claim. But also he's showing us the nature of his kingdom by showing us the way into his kingdom is through the call of his voice. 
and understanding that when we come into Christ, we come into this new community. This community is loving God and loving others. And that when we come into this community that is made up of his people, a very very diverse common group of people, if you will, that we're all surrounded by his sovereign call and we're all been named by him and we've been brought into relationship that we get to find meaning in his mission. We get to do his work, church. As you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, I pray that a couple of things will be worked into your hearts by the Spirit. One is this. I pray that you rejoice. That your name has been called. You're saying, well, how do I know? How do I know? Just the fact that you want him. That he has made you to want him. That he's placed a desire. Just the fact that he has moved and drawn you to himself is the, the voice of God drawing you. The beauty of this is that it's not left to us to try to question, well, how do I know? If we can hear and and you can sense God's voice calling you and drawing you, be thankful, rejoice in that. Second thing is understand that not only is He calling you to Himself, which is powerful, but He's calling you into a new community, into His family. That loving Him is seen in how we love one another. That loving Him is the great commandment, but loving others is just as important. The second is this. Love your neighbor. That when God transforms your heart and gives you a love for Him, all of a sudden we have this love for others that needs to be worked out by His Spirit. The third thing is this, you've been called into his mission. Church, I hope today that we, by the Spirit, are convicted of ways maybe that we're not walking in his work. And I'm not talking about doing some celebrity type thing. I'm talking about in what ways through life, through family, through work, through church, through community, through ways that has God uniquely gifted you and placed you to serve others to spread his word, to share his mission, to do that in very supernaturally natural ways. And I pray that as we come to this table today, that we know that as we meditate on his work, his body, his blood, as we come to the table and we, we, we drink of this and we eat of this, that we're not just saying, okay, God, I, I, I'm doing this out of religious, but that we would understand that we're, we are reaffirming our covenant with him. That's why this table is only for those who are called by him, only those who believe in him, only those who are in relationship with him, because what it's doing is it's a reaffirmation of the covenant that we have and when we're affirming that covenant what we're also saying is God in what ways by your spirit can we be proclaiming this proclaiming this until you come so communion is a powerful way for the spirit to work on your hearts to show you areas that you are off and to repent of those 
God, I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts today. God, I'm asking that your spirit would be moving throughout this room, not in condemning ways, but in convicting ways to your church. Lord, I pray first that they would rejoice that you're calling them and that as they come to the table, they would rejoice that they get to be one with you by your spirit, God. And Father, as they come to your table, Lord, that you would show them that you have also called them into a family and into a work. And that in that, God, not only are they finding forgiveness and hope, but they're finding meaning and purpose. And God, I pray that we would be a people who know the purpose, vision, and meaning in which you have sent us. That as we're praying, that we would also commit to obey and follow and serve and to be sent by you with great authority to do your work. So church, as you come to the table, through the center aisles, as we sing, what I'm asking is that you would sit at your seats and you'd pray. You'd ask God to show you ways that you need to repent. And that we would sing and respond together. Let's respond, church. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.